Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, this is Denise, reading to you the Cape Cod Times dated Monday, July 31st, 2023, the last day of July. We begin with the weather. Today, pleasant with sun and some clouds, a high of 81 with a low of 64. Tonight, a moonlit sky. On Tuesday, partly sunny, a high of 77 with a low of 61. On Wednesday, brilliant sunshine and nice, a high of 76 with a low of 61. On Thursday, times of clouds and sun, a high of 79 with a low of 62. And on Friday, more humid with a shower and a thunderstorm, a high of 78 with a low of 71. In the lottery, the numbers game dated Sunday, July 30th, midday, 8346. Again, 8346. The numbers game Sunday, July 30th, evening, 3644. Again, 3644. Mass Cash dated Sunday, July 30th, 7, 15, 16, 18, 21. Again, 7, 15, 16, 18, 21. And Lucky for Life dated Sunday, July 30th, 5, 9, 19, 44, 46, 15. Again, 5, 9, 19, 44, 46, with a lucky ball of 15. On the front page, last blowout sale, Christmas tree shop closes in West Dennis, Orleans, by Zane Razag, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network, West Dennis. And then there was one. On Sunday, the Christmas tree shop stores in West Dennis and Orleans closed permanently after holding a last blowout sale. The company, which dates back to the 1950s when a small holiday store opened in Yarmouthport, now has one remaining store on Cape Cod. That location in Hyannis is reportedly set to close on August 12th. The stores were the go-to places for Christmas decorations and lights. Paper plates and cups decorated for various holidays, home decoration, knockoffs, beach gear, and linen and kitchen supplies, all at bargain prices. The fact that the roots of this store were established here and then seeing it closed is devastating to me, said Adriana Pustia of Harwich. Pustia, who said she shopped at the Christmas tree shops for about nine years, was among the shoppers visiting the West Dennis store one last time. Inside it was slim pickings and nearly barren shelves, though Pustia managed to find a flowery wreath to purchase other customers reported buying a shopping basket for a $5 as a memento. The Christmas tree shops filed for bankruptcy on May 5th. The company also announced the closing of 10 stores. Two were on the Cape, including one in Falmouth and its flagship location with a thatched roof and windmill at the base of the Sagamore Bridge. The company has been liquidating all of its remaining stores that are scheduled to close permanently. 
In the 1950s, a couple, Mark and Alice Matthews, opened the Christmas tree gift shop in Yarmouthport. In 1970, Charles and Doreen Blazelkian bought the store and expanded over the next three decades, opening 24 more locations in New England and New York. In 2003, Bed Bath & Beyond bought and expanded the franchise to 20 states. In November 2020, it sold the company to Middleborough-based Handel Holdings, LLC. The Bolzikian family still owns the property for the Christmas tree shop store branches in Falmouth, Sagamore, and Orleans. On June 5th, the bankruptcy court authorized DIP financing, which allowed the Christmas tree shop's company to refinance in order to pay employees and restructure the company. Since then, the company has not been able to meet the financial obligations of that loan. The debtors in that bankruptcy filing include Christmas Tree Shops, LLC, Nantucket Distributing Company, Handel LLC, Handel Holdings LLC, and the Swalkovitz Family Trust II LLC. In addition to West Dennis and Orleans, stores in Natick, North Dartmouth, and Pembroke also closed on Sunday. Siblings Nolan Coyle said he and his sister Fiona stopped by the store in search of some sort of something. They emerged victorious, having snatched up a glittery little light-up beach house emblazoned with the word ocean for 20 cents. Everything's cheap, said Nolan. We just wanted to see what's left of the store. I've never seen it that empty. It just looks weird. Jill Long of Harwichport has shopped at Christmas tree shops for 20 years and came in on Sunday to look for picture frames. She knew they were going to close, but I didn't know it was for this far along. It saddens me because, unlike a lot of places on the Cape, it's a reasonably priced and that matters a lot, said Long. So to me, to lose all of the Christmas tree shops is a real negative. When asked if she had a favorite item she'd purchased at the Christmas tree shops, she said, just everything. The next front page story. For some, water no longer so refreshing. Triple-digit ocean temps can make it feel like you are swimming in soup. By Michael Phyllis, Beatrice Dupee, and Rebecca Blackwell. The Associated Press, Key Biscayne, Florida. In the sweltering summer heat, nobody tries to cool off by jumping into a hot tub. In parts of Florida, however, that's what the ocean has felt like. Last week, sea surface temperatures reached as high as 101.2 degrees Fahrenheit around the state's southern tip in Manatee Bay. According to the National Weather Service, although scientists said the context for this reading is complicated, it was like there was no difference between humidity of the air and going into the water said Chelsea Ward of Fort Myers, Florida. Triple-digit ocean temperatures are stunning even in Florida, where residents are used to the heat and where they may many retirees find refuge from cold northern winters. Several other nearby spots reached the mid-90s. A storm finally came through Wednesday, helping water temperatures drop back down into the more temperate 80s. Humans naturally look to water for a chance to refresh. Every summer, millions grab their swimsuits for a day on the beach and a chance to cool off in the water, a break from everyday work and worry. Pools offer the same relief and a place for friends to gather. But when water temperatures get too high, some of the appeal is lost. Ward, 47, doesn't keep her beach bag in her car anymore, even though she lives minutes away from the beach in Fort Myers. Lately, the water is just too hot. 
On Sunday, when her friend asked if she wanted to go to the beach, the two decided against it after discovering the water temperature was around 90 degrees. When it's hot, the body cools down by sweating, which evaporates and releases heat. Dipping into that ocean is typically so refreshing because heat efficiently transfers from your body into the water. But as water temperatures climb, that effect diminishes and you lose less heat less quickly, according to Michael Mullins, a Washington University toxologist and emergency medicine physician at Barnes-Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. A hot tub or a stretch of ocean water hotter than body temperature reverses the transfer of heat into your body. That's not a pleasant experience on a sizzling, humid Florida day. It would feel, Mullen said, like you are swimming in soup. People already tend to not swim that much in the Florida waters that were so extremely hot last week. The water can get muddy and there are alligators and crocodiles in the area too. But high temperatures anywhere can make swimming less pleasant. Through Friday, Phoenix endured highs above 110 degrees every day this month. Pools are warm about 150 miles to the northwest in Lake Havasaw City, Arizona. Stephanie Lynn Thompson, 50, wanted to keep guests cool for a pool party she hosted July 23rd. The heat had raised the pool's temperature to 96 degrees. Her friend recommended she go buy ice blocks. She ran to the grocery store, picked up 40 of them, and dumped them into the pool. She set up fans, too. All that hard work, the pool's temperature, a grand total, dropped by 4 degrees. When it's 120 out, anything helps. Recently, ocean temperatures off the western coast of Florida have been a few degrees above normal, sitting around 88 to 90 degrees. It's not just humans that suffer when the ocean's warm. Sea corals and bleaching are also hurt. They can be hurt when the water temperature rise above the upper 80s. July has been so hot that scientists announced a global heat record even before the month ended. Climate change is creating a hotter world, warming oceans and making some storms more destructive. Sea surface temperatures are somewhat above average around Florida, but they are far higher in parts of the North Atlantic near Newfoundland where they are as much as 9 degrees hotter than usual. The extremely high sea surface temperatures recorded last week off of Florida's southern tip were caused by lots of sun, little wind, and no storms. I've never seen temperatures 100 degrees in Florida Bay in the 21 years I've been in the Keys, said Andy Devenes, science officer at the National Weather Service in Key West, Florida. And there are some questions about how rep- how representative the 101.2 degree reading on July 24th in Manatee Bay was. Water there is shallow and thus heats up quickly. If there's lots of sediment, that can raise temperatures too, according to David Roth, a forecaster with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Climate Prediction Center. By contrast, stop by the YMCA pools on the north shore of Massachusetts near Boston, and you'll descend into water that's around 78 to 80 degrees. The ocean nearby is cooler too. Sea surface temperatures off Cape Cod, for example, barely touched the mid-70s. Florida's humid humid weather makes it harder for sweat to evaporate and cool the body down. People in South Florida know the ocean doesn't tend to offer real relief from the suffocating heat. You aren't getting much cooling at all, Ross said. Nobody goes into the water in South Florida in the summer, really, except to swim because it's comfortable to swim, but it's not refreshing. The next story. Centivral man killed in I-95 crash, Yarmouth man injured. 
by Zane Razek, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. A Centerville man was killed and a Yarmouth man was injured in a three-vehicle chain reaction crash on Interstate Highway 95 in Topsfield on Friday. David Procopio, a spokesman for the Massachusetts State Police, said in a statement. Valsergio Costa Silva, 44, of Centerville, was one of three passengers in a Chevrolet Express van traveling south on the highway at about 4.17 p.m. when it was struck by a Chevrolet Impala attempting to avoid hitting a 2008 GMC Acadia SUV that had come to a stop in front of it, according to a statement from Procupio. Upon impact, the van left the roadway, slid across the grass median, and rolled over one and a half times, ejecting Sylvia and another passenger, a 30-year-old male who suffered serious life-threatening injuries and was brought by medical helicopter to Boston Medical Center. Sylvia was pronounced dead at the scene. Procopio said a third passenger, a 53-year-old male, address unknown at this time, was brought by ambulance to an area hospital with serious injuries. A 32-year-old Yarmouth man who was driving the van suffered minor injuries and was taken by ambulance to an area hospital. Procopio said it is unknown why the SUV came to a full stop in its lane of travel on the highway and remains un under investigation. After the collision of the two vehicles, the SUV that came to a stop pulled over to the breakdown lane and the driver and passenger fled on foot into an adjacent woods. This prompted a search by multiple patrol troopers, state police canine unit teams, and a state police air wing helicopter crew. One of the two people in the Acadia who fled, a 30-year-old Lynn man, was captured by troopers. He was charged with interfering with the police officers and booked on state police Newbury barracks. He later posted bail and is awaiting a court date. The second person, believed to be a Lynn man and the driver, was seen by witnesses running in the area of the 17th and 18th holes of the Ferncroft Country Club's golf course. Procopio's statement described that suspect last seen running toward the club's parking lot as a Hispanic man wearing a gray t-shirt. Investigators were still looking for that person as of Sunday. The 52-year-old Peabody man who drove the Impala, which came to rest at the edge of the median after crashing into the van, has no apparent injuries. Three southbound lanes and two northbound lanes on I-95 were closed to allow for rescue and the crash investigation. The scene was cleared at 7.39 p.m. In the Cape and Islands section, photo shoot, the art of attempting to photograph birds. By Steve Heelslip, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. Photographing birds is a skill I work on but never perfect. Last week, a pair of birding misadventures made that abundantly clear. The hot weather settled in and slow news day gave a rare morning to experiment. There is a hummingbird feeder in our front yard that provides endless entertainment and a literal bird's eye view from the bedroom. So loaded down with technology, I set out to use everything in the photo toolbox to get a great image of the fast-moving tiny birds. I uncrated the wonderful but extremely heavy giant old Nikon telephoto lens and set it up in front of the stoop, slightly shielded from the feeder's view. Next, a flash was needed to light up the foreground, which was backlit. The short flash duration I thought would also help stop the bird's wing in flight. Once the camera position was set, I locked it down on a tripod, rigged a remote trigger to the flash, and a second remote to fire the camera via a cell phone. The flash 
position was moved several times and finally had to be brought under the porch overhang as it kept overheating in the sun. Now, the best part, I could sit in the air-conditioned bedroom and fire the camera remotely when a bird arrived, and several subjects soon appeared. This was too easy. Going out to check on the first images, there was a bird, but only the feeder was in focus, and the one five-hundredth of a second shutter did not stop its wings' motion. It was time to retool. First, I bumped up the shutter speed to one and four thousand. Next, it was time to abandon the air conditioned inside. I needed to be on camera and manually focus when the bird came to feed at its depth of focus, only about two inches. That long, hot waiting game began. It took about an hour, but a couple of images worked. Even at such a high shutter speed, there is still a bit of wing blur. Noontime approached and the light got bad and it was lunchtime, so it was a wrap. That evening, there was a breaking bird news. A mountain plover was drawing big crowds at Long Beach and Centerville to see a bird usually found in the western Great Plains of the U.S. Early the next morning, the jumbo lens was back in action as I headed out down the beach. Thankfully, I met a pair of seasoned birders heading home. They had walked the entire area three miles, their GPS said, and no sign of the newest plover on Cape. Talking with a beachgoer in the parking lot, she spoke the words we dread. You should have been here yesterday. She told me how the plover had spent a lot of time wandering around in front of her beach towel. Well, maybe next time, but enough birding for one week. Included is the beautiful picture of the hummingbird with a statement saying, A ruby-throated hummingbird takes the heat in stride as its wings into a feeder in Barnstable. Photo by Steve Heelslip, Cape Cod Times. What a beautiful picture. The next Cape and Islands story. People of Action Hold 7th Barnstable Unity Day by Graham Crewing House, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. The Hyannis Village Green has been lucky to experience beautiful weather the afternoon of Barnstable Unity Day six times in a row, Will Ford said Monday. The only time they've had to cancel in the last eight years was in 2020 due to the pandemic. They've never so much as set a rain date. For the coming week, Ford said, he and the rest of the local community organization, People of Action, will be hoping for a seventh stroke of same luck as the event returns to the Green August 4th. Organized by People of Action alongside Barnstable Police and town officials, the event is a free afternoon of fun to be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Organizers said attendees can expect the same grill setup, the same yard games, and the same dunk teams as in previous years. People of Action do their best each year to make the whole thing as fun as they can. But Ford said that it's not just about that. They conceptualized the event as a way to bring the Barnstable community and the Barnstable police together, and Ford said that it is as important as ever. There's tons of stuff going on on Main Street, in Hyannis, all that, Ford said, referring to the June 25th drive-by shooting that left one injured and that prosecutors called spectacularly brazen. Me growing up as a kid here, I never would have thought something like that would happen here. That type of incident motivates motivates people of action to continue building bridges between residents and police, he added. He gave thanks to the Barnstable Police, particularly Community Officer Brian Morrison, who has been working 
with People of Action on Unity Day from the very start. Morrison has seen a lot of change when it comes to police community building bridges over the past eight years. He recalled that when he joined the Barnstable Police Department, he was one of maybe three people of color in the department, and he faced backlash from many in the black community as well. Since that first Unity Day, it's all come back around to friendliness and trust, Morrison said. It's been an absolute icebreaker for everyone. Touch a truck, dunk tank, resource tables, and more in Barnstable. As of previous in years, the X-Grill, a mobile grill truck dedicated to serving up franks and patties, will be on hand all afternoon alongside an ice cream truck, both serving attendees for free. Police, fire, and Department of Public Works officials will bring their trucks and other heavy equipment for kids to explore and learn about. Morrison said one of the things he most is hoping for is to see dance performed by Mashpee Wampanoag tribe members, which they've done in past years. Another highlight, Morrison said, will be a dunk tank last year. Barnstable Police Chief Matthew Sonnebin sat at the plank and had many a kid try to sink him. This year, Morrison said, he has not only signed himself up for a dunk tank, but he has done some recruiting for it. Ascending to the seat of peril will be Cape and Islands District Attorney Rob Galbois, who Morrison said he's known since he was a workie and Galbois was a public defender. It looks like the chief is already warming up his wing, Galbois joked in a statement on Facebook. According to town officials, the day will also include resource tables for organizations from the youth center to neighbor to neighbor, as well as a donation table for the upcoming backpack giveaway, a community art wall run by Hyannis Public Library, and a scholarship giveaway for one lucky Barnstable High School graduate. With any luck, weather-wise, the day should look the same as previous years. As Ford said, if it ain't broke, why fix it? And hopefully, in another seven years, we'll be having the same conversation, Ford said. Travel warning issued for Haiti. U.S. mother, young daughter reported kidnapped last week, the Associated Press. A woman from New Hampshire who works for a nonprofit organization in Haiti and her young daughter have been reported as kidnapped as the U.S. State Department issued a do not travel advisory in the country and ordered non-emergency personnel to leave there amid growing security concerns. Alex Dorsonville, a nurse for Elwari, Haiti, and her daughter were kidnapped Thursday, the organization said in a statement. Elwari, which runs a school and ministry in Port-au-Prince, said the two were taken from campus. Dorvisil is the wife of the program's director, Sandro Dorvisil. Alex is a deeply compassionate and loving person who considers Haiti her home and the Haitian people her friends and family. Elwari president and co-founder Jason Brown said in the statement, Alex has worked tirelessly as our school and community nurse to bring relief to those who are suffering as she loves and serves the people of Haiti in the name of Jesus. A State Department spokesperson said in a statement, Saturday, it is aware of reports of the kidnapping of two U.S. citizens in Haiti, adding, we are in regular contact with Haitian authorities and will continue to work with them and our U.S. government and interagency partners. In its advisory, the department said kidnapping is widespread and victims regularly include U.S. citizens. It said kidnappings often involve ransom negotiations and U.S. citizen victims have been physically harmed. Earlier this month, the National Human Rights Defense Network issued a report warning about an upsurge in killings and kidnappings in the UN Security Council met to discuss Haiti's worsening situation. 
WMUR-TV reported that Dorsonville is from Middleton, New Hampshire and went to Regis College in Western Massachusetts, which has a program to support nursing, to support nursing education in Haiti. It doesn't surprise me that Alex chose to get involved in this type of service work, Regis College President Tony Hayes told the station. She was amazing, she was passionate, and she was compassionate. Pentagon official says UFO hearing insulting. By no mean merchant and Tara Kopp, the Associated Press, Washington. A top Pentagon official has attacked last week's widely watched congressional hearing on UFOs, calling the claims insulting to employees who are investigating sightings and accusing a key witness of not cooperating with the official U.S. government investigation. Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick's letter, published on its personal LinkedIn page and circulated Friday across social media, criticizes much of the testimony from a retired Air Force intelligence officer that energized believers in extraterrestrial life and produced headlines around the world. Retired Air Force Major David Grush testified Wednesday that the U.S. has concealed what he called a multi-seed program to collect and reverse engineer UAPs or unidentified aerial phenomenon, the official government term for UFOs. Part of what the U.S. has recovered, Grush testified, were non-human biologics, which he said had not been seen but had learned about from people with direct knowledge of the program. A career intelligence officer, Kirkpatrick, was named a year ago to lead the Pentagon's All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Officer, or AARO, which was intended to centralize investigations into UAPs. The Pentagon and U.S. intelligence agencies have been pushed by Congress in recent years to better investigate reports of devices flying at unusual speeds or trajectories as a national security concern. Kirkpatrick wrote the letter Thursday, and the Defense Department confirmed Friday that he posted it in a personal capacity. Kirkpatrick declined to comment on the letter Friday. He writes in part, I cannot let yesterday's hearing pass without sharing how insulting it was to the officers of the Department of Defense and Intelligence Community who cho chose to join the AARO, many not with not unreasonable anxieties about the career risks this would entail. They are truth seekers, so am I, Kirkpatrick said, but you certainly would not get that impression from yesterday's hearing. In a separate statement, Pentagon spokeswoman Sue Gao denied other allegations made by Grush before a House Oversight Subcommittee. The Pentagon has no information that any individual has been harmed or killed as a result of providing information about UFO objects. Nor has the Pentagon discovered any verifiable information to substantiate claims that any programs regarding the possession or reverse engineering of extraterrestrial materials have existed in the past or exist currently. Kirkpatrick wrote, AARO has yet to find any credible evidence to support the allegations of any reverse engineering program for non-human technology. Kirkpatrick wrote in his letter that allegations of retaliation to include physical assault and hints of murder are extraordinarily serious, which is why law enforcement is a critical member of the AARO team, specifically to address and take swift action should anyone come forward with such claims. This is a reminder that this is Denise reading to you the Monday, July 31st edition of the Cape Cod Times. It's time for the obituaries. George Truman Lewis, Jr. 
Born September 23, 1939, at Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis and lived in Osterville in his younger years, he was a graduate from Barnstable High School. He joined the Navy after high school where he served for three years. He met his wife, the love of his life, on Main Street in Hyannis. He was part owner of Cape Wide Electronics in Hyannis for many years. Later in life, he opened Truman's Bait and Tackle in West Yarmouth, where you would always see his loyal companion Jack, the Yellow Lab, sitting in the doorway. When he retired, he settled in Dunedin, Florida. He loved life, his family, his friends, fishing, golfing, and being near the ocean. He is survived by his beloved wife, Anne Lynch Lewis, and other loved ones and family. A military service will be held at the Massachusetts National Cemetery in Bourne, Wednesday, August 2nd at 11.15 a.m. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to Moffitt Cancer Center Foundation. In the Nation and World Briefs In summer heat, bear spotted in California jacuzzi, Burbank, California. With the summer heat wave in full swing in Southern California, a backyard pool is a tempting place to take a dip even for a bear. Police in the city of Burbank responded to a report of a bear sighting in a residential neighborhood and found the animal sitting in a jacuzzi behind one of the homes. After a short dip, the bear climbed over a wall and headed to a tree behind the home, police said in a statement Friday. The Burbank police have issued warnings for residents to avoid bears and to keep all garbage and food locked up to discourage bears from coming to their residences. Crews tow burning ship to a new location off Dutch coast, The Hague, Netherlands. Salvage crews started towing a burning cargo ship loaded with thousands of cars to a temporary Anchorage location off northern Dutch coast on Sunday after smoke pouring from the stricken vessel eased, authorities said. On Saturday night, the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management had said the Fermantle highway was unlikely to be moved because of southeasterly wind blowing smoke from days old fire tugboats but that changed sunday the ship was being slowly towed by two tugs to a temporary anchor point about 10 miles north of the dutch islands experts are continuously monitoring the ship's stability and a specialized boat used to clean up oil is nearby in case there is a spill the ministry added Helicopter crashes in Ohio, killing pilot, causing accidents. Springfield, Ohio. A helicopter hit power lines and crashed near the interstate in Ohio over the weekend, killing the pilot and causing a series of crashes, authorities said. The Bell 206L4 aircraft was flying near I-70 in Springfield Township in Clark County when it hit the lines and crashed into a cornfield shortly after noon Saturday, the Ohio State Highway Patrol said. The pilot, 36-year-old Isaac Lee Santos of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, was pronounced dead at the scene, state troopers said. The aircraft was owned by Helicopter Applicators, Inc. of Gettysburg, which does aerial applications such as herbicide and insecticide to farmland and other industries, according to the Springfield News Sun. Power lines fell onto the westbound and eastbound lanes of I-70, resulting in minor crashes of seven vehicles, authorities said. No other injuries were reported. The highway was closed for about five hours, and Ohio Edison crews have been working to restore power to the area. Explosion at Fireworks Warehouse in Thailand kills 10. Bangkok. 
A large explosion at a fireworks warehouse in southern Thailand on Saturday killed at least 10 people and wounded dozens. The Narathwaite Province's Public Relations Department also said that at least 118 people were hurt and that residents of more than 200 households were affected. It said that officials believe there are still a number of people trapped under the debris waiting to be rescued. Videos posted on social media from the site show a huge plume of smoke over the area and many damaged structures, cars and motorbikes, as well as streets covered with debris. Many of the houses and other buildings have collapsed, roofs and walls. Thousands take to the streets in rare display of discontent with Hamas, Gaza City. Several thousand people briefly took to the streets across the Gaza Strip on Sunday to protest chronic power outages and difficult living conditions, providing a rare public show of discontent with the territory's Hamas government. Hamas security forces quickly dispersed the gatherings. Hundreds joined marches in the Gaza City, the southern town of Khan Yunz, and other locations chanting what a shame and in one place burning Hamas flags before police moved in and broke up the protests. Police destroyed mobile phones of people who were filming in Khan Yunus and witnesses said there were several arrests. Young supporters and opponents of the Hamas briefly faced off, throwing stones at one another. In the Nation and World Arrest highlights painful truth. Despite potential breakthrough, sex worker cases often stay open. By Wayne Perry, the Associated Press, Atlantic City, New Jersey. The discovery of four dead women in a drainage ditch just outside Atlantic City was shocking news in 2006. International media flocked to the seaside gambling resort. More than 100 detectives and prosecutors were assigned to investigate. Casino guests worried about safety and the victim's fellow sex workers began carrying hidden knives. But as the years passed, the public's attention and fear faded, and the case of the eastbound strangler, so named for the direction the victim's heads were facing, remained unsolved. The arrest earlier this month of a man charged with killing three women whose remains were found on a Long Island beach in 2010 has breathed fresh life into another long-dormant case with obvious parallels. The Gilgo Beach serial killers involve a total of 11 victims, most of whom were young female sex workers, yet the recent breakthrough and the rekindling of public interest only highlights a painful truth. Many similar cases, like the one in Atlantic City, remain open. The FBI would not say how many killings of sex sex workers in the U.S. remain unsolved. Media accounts and statements from local authorities show a long trail of open cases from nine women whose bodies were found along highways in Massachusetts to 11 found dead in New Mexico and eight more found amid the crawfish farms and swamps of southern Louisiana. The killings of sex workers in Chicago, New Haven, Connecticut, and Ohio, among other places, also remain mysteries. From the days of London's Jack the Ripper in the 1880s, serial killers, particularly those preying on sex workers, have often gotten away with it, in part because their victims were easy targets living on the margins of society. Gary Ridgway, the so-called Green River Killer, convicted of 49 killings in Washington State, said during a 2003 court hearing in which he pleaded guilty that he chose sex sex workers as victims because he knew they would not be missed quickly, if at all. I picked prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught, he said. 
The $15 a night motel in Egg Harbor Township behind which the four bodies were found is, a long, is long gone. It was torn down in an attempt to clear a seedy area known for crime, drugs, and disturbances. And the murders of Barbara Brader, 42, Molly Jean Dilch, 20, Kim Raffo, 35, and Tracy Ann Roberts, 23. Because it's near the ocean, like Gilgo Beach, the location has prompted much speculation by amateur detectives about a single killer. But some other online sleuths have pointed out that the oceanside areas are often the remotest locations. After hours on the densely packed east coast, Gilgo Beach is about 3.5 hours from Atlantic City. Gone in New Jersey are the four small wooden crosses someone erected on the site, along with folded up paper note bearing a biblical quote promising justice that someone left there on one of the anniversaries of the discovery of the bodies. For families left behind, each new day without word in the case of their loved one brings fresh pain. I kind of lost hope that anyone was ever searching for the killer anymore, said Joyce Roberts, whose daughter Tracy Ann was one of the four Atlantic City area victims. The first six months, the prosecutor did get on the phone with me and told me they were working on it. Then it just fell off the radar, she said. It was like nobody cared anymore. That is the sentiment echoed by Phoenix Kalita, a former sex worker from Chicago who now advocates for them through the Sex Workers Outreach Project. Police departments often refer to it as an NHI case, no humans involved. You feel like the only way you'll be remembered is when they catch the serial killer who killed you and then they'll make five movies about him and no one will remember your name. Massachusetts State Police are investigating nine unsolved homicides possibly committed by the same person, said David Porcopio, a spokesperson for the agency. He said two additional missing person cases may be homicides related to the other nine. Gilbert Galgos, a spokesman for the Albuquerque Police Department, said the New Mexico cases remain actively investigated with multiple detectives working them. The 11 victims were all involved in drugs and prostitution, police said. A reward of $100,000 has been offered for information leading to an arrest and conviction in the case, which involved two victims who were 15 years old. Despite the decade-long efforts of a local, state, and federal task force, Louisiana has at least eight unsolved apparent homicide cases involving sex workers between the ages of 17 and 30. Their bodies were found in marshy areas in Jennings, a small town in the area known as Cajun County between 2005 and 2009. Prosecutors in New York, Suffolk County investigating the Gilgo Beach cases have been in touch with multiple law enforcement agencies, but District Attorney Ray Tierney would not say which ones. Everything is being examined and looked at, and this is an active investigation, said Anthony Carter, Suffolk County's Deputy Police Commissioner. He would not say if his agency was investigating any connection between Huerman and the Atlantic City murders. Atlantic County Prosecutor William Reynolds and the four cases from the drainage ditch outside Atlantic City remain active, with detectives assigned to them, but would not say how many. He declined comment on the Long Island case, as we are not involved. Joyce Roberts, the victim's mother, said no one from law enforcement has called her since the arrest was made in the Long Island cases. Police in Las Vegas, where Hewerman owns a timeshare, said they are investigating whether Hewerman may be involved in cases involving the killings of sex workers there. 
In the months immediately after the body's discovery near Atlantic City, the local prosecutor's office and a dozen other law enforcement agencies had 140 people assigned to cases, Ted Housel, who was prosecutor at the time, said in 2008. By the first anniversary, the total had fallen to 85, and those investigators were also working on other cases. Kalita, the former sex worker from Chicago, said women involved in the sex trade are frequently robbed by people who know they're carrying cash and are sometimes coerced into sexual activity by police in return for not being arrested. She said an attacker knows you can't or won't report you. You're an easy target and they know it. Three of her friends, who were also sex workers in Chicago, also turned up dead. You see someone, you become friends with them, and then one day they're suddenly just not there. We'd all go out asking around and looking for them, and then a few days later, a body would be found. There's always this specific fear that it's a serial killer. Sometimes we never even get a body back to bury, and we wonder, will law enforcement take it seriously because it's just another sex worker? The next story, box office. After one week, it's still a Barbie bonanza by Jake Coyle, the Associated Press, New York. A week later, the Barbenheimer boom has not abated. Seven days after Greta Gerwig's Barbie and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer conspired to set box office records, the two films held up unusually strongly in theaters. Barbie took in a massive $93 million in its second weekend, according to studio estimates Sunday. Oppenheimer stayed in second with a robust $46.2 million. Sales for the two movies dipped 43% and 44% respectively, well shy of the usual week two drops. Barbenheimer has proven to be not a one-weekend phenomenon, but an ongoing box office bonanza. The two movies combined have already surpassed $1 billion in worldwide ticket sales. Paul Dragenbiden, senior media analyst for data firm CornScore, call it a touchstone moment for movies, moviegoers, and movie theaters. Having two movies from rival studios linked in, in this way and both boosting each other's fortunes, both box office-wise and in terms of their profile, I don't know if there's a comp for this in the annals of box office history, said Derbagen. That's really no comparison for this. Following its year-best $162 million opening, the pink-infused pop sensation of Barbie saw remarkably sustained business through the week and into the weekend. The film outpaced Nolan's The Dark Knight to have best first 11 days in theaters of any Warner Brothers release ever. Barbie has rapidly accumulated $351.4 million in U.S. and Canadian theaters, a rate that will soon make its biggest box office hit of the summer. Every day it's played, Barbie has made at least $20 million. The Barbie effect isn't just in North America. The film made $122.2 million internationally over the weekend. Its global tally has reached $775 million. It's that kind of business that astounds even veteran studio executives. That's a crazy number, said Jeff Goldstein, distribution chief of, for Warner Brothers. There's just a built-in audience that wants to be a part of this zygist movement. Wherever you go, people are wearing pink. Pink is taking over the world. Amid the frenzy, Barbie is already attracting a lot of repeat moviegoers. 
Goldstein estimates that 12% of sales are people going back with friends or family to see it again. For a movie industry that has been trying to regain its pre-pandemic footing and that now finds itself largely shuttered due to actors and screenwriter strikes, the sensations of Barbie and Oppenheimer have showed what's possible when everything lines up just right. Post-pandemic, there's no ceiling and there's no floor, said Goldstein. The movies that miss really miss big time and the movies that work really work big time. Universal Pictures Oppenheimer, meanwhile, is performing more like a superhero movie than a three-hour film about scientists talking. Nolan's drama starring Cillian Murphy as an atomic bomb physicist, J. Robert Oppenheimer, has accrued $174.1 million domestically thus far with an additional $72.4 million in international cinemas. Oppenheimer has already surpassed $400 million globally. Showings in IMAX have typically been sold out. Oppenheimer has made $80 million worldwide on IMAX. The large format exhibitor said Sunday that it will extend the film's run through August 13th. The week's top new release, Walt Disney Company's Haunted Mansion, an adaptation of the Disney theme park attraction, was easily overshadowed by the Barbenheimer Blitz. The film, which cost about $150 million, debuted with $24 million domestically and $9 million in overseas sales. Haunted Mansion, directed by Justin Simeon and starring an ensemble of Lakeith Stanfield, Tiffany Haddish, Owen Wilson, Danny DeVito, and Rosario Dawson, struggled to overcome mediocre reviews. Talk to Me, the A24 supernatural horror film, fared better. It debuted with $10 million. The film, directed by Australian filmmakers Danny and Michael Philippou and starring Sophie Wilde, was a midnight premiere at the Sundance Dance Film Festival in January and received terrific reviews from critics. It was made for a modest $4.5 million. While theaters being flush with moviegoers has been a huge boom, to the film industry, it's been tougher sledding for Tom Cruise, the so-called savior of the movies last summer with Top Gun Maverick. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which debuted the week before the arrival of Barbenheimer, grossed $10.7 million in its third weekend. Starring Cruise and directed by Christopher McQuarrie, the film has grossed $139.2 million domestically and $309.3 million overseas. Instead, the sleeper hit Sound of Freedom has been the best-performing non-Barbenheimer release in theaters. The Angel Studios release, which is counting crowdfunding pay-it-forward sales in its totals, made $12.4 million in its fourth weekend, bringing its haul thus far to nearly $150 million. High-tech farming, a big boon for wealthy nations. Pigs have cooling pads, cows forecasts in the U.S. By Melina Walling, the Associated Press, Chicago. More than a third of the heat-trapping gases cooking the planet come from growing and raising farm animals. But millions of cattle, pigs, and other animals get to stay cool in the U.S. and other parts of the developed world. Many American farmers have apps to forecast animal comfort in the heat. They are computer-controlled cooling pads for sows. Dairy farmers lower barns' temperatures with misters, air conditioning, and giant fans. Special pedometers, the cow version of a Fitbit, measure vital signs that give clues to the animal's health. More intense 
Summer heat resulting from emissions-driven climate change means animals' heat stress that can result in billions of dollars in lost revenue for farmers and ranchers if not properly managed. But technology often insulates livestock in richer countries, another way global warming exacerbates the gap between wealthy and poor nations. The U.S. is the world's largest producer and consumer of beef by volume. People have been drinking less milk in the U.S., but eating more cheese and government programs still support dairies across the country. About 20% of all global greenhouse gas emissions come from animal-based food products, said Atul Jain, a professor in the Department of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Illinois Urbana campaign, who studies the interactions between climate and human activities like agriculture. Livestock producers in other parts of the world can't adopt measures to beat the heat as easily as farmers in the U.S. A 2022 study in the Lancet Planetary Health found that cattle heat stress losses will be far greater in most tropical regions than in temperate regions due to higher climate impacts and the relatively higher price of measures to adapt to climate change. Many experts advocate for people in countries like the U.S. where Diets are heavy with animal products to eat less meat and dairy, but big industrial farms in developed countries are relatively efficient, so to meet global demand with fewer animals, less developed countries will also need to access the kind of technology that can make them more productive in the face of extreme heat. Those innovations bring me a lot of hope, said Mario Herrero, a professor of food systems and global change at Cornell University, who co-authored the Lancet Planetary Health Study. It's a matter of how we deploy them. The winter, the McAllister family of New Vienna, Iowa, installed new fans above the beds where their cows rest and they're happy with the updates. The cows are already showing signs of improved welfare, like chewing more cud, and there's more heat ahead this summer. We're going to do what's best by our cows, no matter what is or isn't going on with climate change, said Megan McAllister, a sixth-generation dairy farmer. Her husband's family has been farming for five generations. September feels like another August these days. We want to make the right investments to better our cows, better our business, that our dairies, and make sure we are here for the long haul and that we are thinking about sustainability. Making that investment, of course, has a price. More fans for cooling means higher energy bills. That's something Dr. Michelle Schack, a dairy veterinarian based in Arizona, has noticed as well. She said that farmers she works with are well prepared for the blistering heat the state has seen this year. Because as research on animal health has improved, they've invested in infrastructure. But it costs a lot. Fans and misters, let's not forget, are hugely expensive. Not only to install, but the amount of electricity they take is insane. That could be partly addressed with cheaper solar power integrated into agricultural projects. But regardless, it's going to be a challenge, and a financial challenge, for more farms to adopt heat mitigation strategies, said Gerald Nelson, a professor emeritus at the University of Illinois Urbana-Campaign and a co-author on the Lancet Planetary Health Study. Nelson described how different heat-tolerant animal species, or even something as simple as shade structures and extra water supplies, can make a big difference when adapting to heat. Information can help too. A team of USDA and university scientists recently launched a new app called Hot Hog that uses local weather data to help farmers anticipate conditions that might be uncomfortable for their pigs. 
and Chip Redman, a meteorologist at Kansas State University, helped develop a seven-day animal comfort forecast tool for beef farmers that takes into account temperature as well as factors like humidity and wind. As part of his work with Kansas State, Redman gives presentations to producers and the general public and he said that climate change has come up in conversations. Both he and Jackie Bowerman, an associate professor in the development of animal sciences at Purdue University, said that they recognize that farmers have to deal with the effects of climate change every day. We want to cool cows, but we also have to recognize that we want to be environmental, environmentally sustainable. Those two ideas, she said, sometimes a little bit are at odds with each other. In brief. Four found clinging to hull of overturned boat off New Jersey rescued. Sandy Hook, New Jersey. Four people found clinging to the hull of an overturned boat off New Jersey were rescued and taken to a hospital, authorities said. Coast Guard officials in New York say Coast Guard crews and New York police and fire units were deployed in the area off Sandy Hook after receiving a distress call over VHF Channel 16. Petty Officer Logan Kazimarek told the Asbury Park Press that rescue crews found a floating debris field of items from a boat. They then found the four people at about 2.15 a.m. Sunday holding on to floating hull near the Romer Shoal Light Station about two and a half nautical miles from the tip of Sandy Hook. Crews from Station Sandy Hook pulled two people from the water while the other two were rescued by New York fire crews. All four were taken to Mammoth Medical Center in Long Branch. There was no immediate word on the, their condition. Coast Guard officials didn't immediately release information about the type of vessel or the reason it capsized. Two killed after shots fired blocks from University of Florida campus, Gainesville. Gunshots rang out in a crowd early Sunday, killing two people in the city that is home to Florida's flagship university, authorities said. Police officers have been conducting crowd control in downtown Gainesville, Florida, in a commercial corridor several blocks from the University of Florida's campus when they heard gunshots, the police department said in a post. The post didn't disclose how many people were shot, but said two of the shooting victims later died from their injuries. Police were seeking the public's help for any information on the shootings. Four killed in fiery ATV rollover crash in central Washington. Ellensburg, Washington. Four people are dead after the all-terrain vehicle they were, they were in rolled over and burst into flames on a dirt road in central Washington's Okanoan Wenatchee National Forest. Kittis County Sheriff's officials say a 24-year-old Connor Jenkins of Orting crashed his side-by-side -side ATV west of the town of Liberty on Saturday afternoon. First responders arrived within minutes and prevented the gas-fueled fire from spreading. No other vehicles were involved. Also in the vehicle were Jenkins' friend, 23-year-old Benjamin Gomez, Santana of Covington, and a couple they met that day. 26-year-old Devin Anson of Kent and 24-year-old Hallie Cole of Maple Valley. Gomez, Santana, and Cole died at the scene. Jenkins and Anison were flown by helicopter to a burn unit in Seattle where they both died. The open field where the crash happened is a popular spot for campers and off-roaders. Investigators have not said what caused the ATV to roll over. Fighters who went missing during Spanish Civil War ID'd Barcelona, Spain. 
Spanish government researchers said Sunday they had identified 357 foreign fighters who went missing during the Spanish Civil War, the conflict that foreshadowed World War II. Researchers confirmed their names of 212 fighters from Germany, Austria, and the Netherlands, according to a statement from the government Sunday. Some 102 of German origin, 70 Austrian, and 40 Dutch. It gave no information on how many people of other nationalities had been identified. In the Ask Carolyn section, Dear Carolyn, Recently, my girlfriend and I attended a family gathering. Afterward, I was set to go to a close friend's house party. My girlfriend could have gone, but she didn't want to, which I think is fine. We don't have to accompany each other all of the time. The problem is that she didn't want me to go either. She didn't give a particular reason. I should have asked, and I didn't. And I wanted to go to the party, all the more so because it happened to be my friend's birthday party. It made it important that I go, even aside from my desire to go. My girlfriend responded along the lines of, So what? Birthdays are, why are birthdays so important? I was confused. First, my girlfriend has never minimized birthdays before. And second, yes, I believe celebrating a friend's birthday is an important part of maintaining a friendship, especially if that person throws a party and invites you. Since this happened, I'm starting to see other incidents where I was set to see some friends and she, in retrospect, concocted some argument between us or other emotional situation. I have some homebody tendencies and would describe myself as an introvert. In other words, I'm not going out with high frequency. Are these red flags? Dear seeing a problem, a pattern you don't like doesn't have to warrant a label or fit a definition like controlling, manipulative, abusive to be significant. You don't like it and it's something she does regularly. That's an action item. So just wanting to break up, no justifications necessary. As it happens though, what you describe is a basic form of controlling behavior in a relationship. Controller wants you to do something so she makes sure you know there will be uncomfortable emotional consequences if you don't do what she wants. Anyway, as I said up front, none of this needs to be true for you to opt out of the relationship. You can decide that a person concocting some argument every time you want to go out to a freaking birthday party is not mature enough or managing her anxiety well enough to date. And we end our reading today with Today in History. Today is Monday, July 31st, the 212th day of 2023. There are 153 days left in the year. On this day in 1715, a fleet of Spanish ship car ships carrying gold, silver, and jewelry sank during a hurricane off of the East Florida coast. Of some 2,500 crew members, more than 1,000 died. In 1777, during the Revolutionary War, the Marquis de Lafayette, a 19-year-old French nobleman, was made a major general in the American Continental Army. In 1919, Germany's Weimar Constitution was adopted by the Republic's National Assembly. In 1945, Pierre Lavelle, premier of the pro-Nazi Vichy government in France, surrendered to U.S. authorities in Austria. He was turned over to France, which later tried and executed him. In 1953, Senator Robert A. Taft of Ohio, known as Mr. Republican, died in New York at the age of 63. In 1957, the distant early warning line, a system of radar stations designed to detect Soviet bombers approaching North America, went into operation. In 1970, 
The Huntley-Brinkley report came to an end after nearly 14 years as co-anchor. Chet Huntley signed off for the last time the broadcast was renamed NBC Nightly News. In 1971, Apollo 15 crew members David Scott and James Irwin became the first astronauts to use a lunar rover on the surface of the moon. In 1972, Democratic Vice President candidate Thomas Eagleton withdrew from the ticket with George McGovern following disclosures that Eagleton had once undergone psychiatric treatment. In 1981, a seven-week-old Major League Baseball strike ended. And in 1991, President George H.W. Bush and Soviet President Mikhail S. Gorbachev signed the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty in Moscow. We've reached the end of our reading for today, Monday, July 31st, 2023, of the Cape Cod Times. Enjoy the beautiful weather.